Welcome to Felon of Freeman. We help men and women walk the path from prison to prosperity. Anthony Harris and Tom Payton bring you interviews, stories of redemption, moments of inspiration, and helpful tips to mold those handcuffs into cufflinks. Welcome to episode one of the Felon to Freeman podcast. On this episode, we meet the founders of the organization, Anthony Harris, Tone Payton, Antonio Mabin, and Marquise Olison, as they host their event, True Stories of Redemption, in front of a live Zoom audience of their family and friends. After the stories, tune in for an interview with Anthony and Tone. Kicking it over to Tone. Hello, everyone. This is Anthony Tone Payton. I'm here with the Felon and Freeman podcast. This podcast starts at the Felon and Freeman launch party with Anthony Harris. We provide mentorship, life coaching, health and wellness counseling, job training, stress management, and community support to men and women who've made mistakes in life and want to change for the better. I know our program works because I am living proof of it. I was born in 1982 to a single mother who was addicted to crack cocaine. When I was five years old, my mother lost custody of me and my siblings. My younger brother and sister moved with our aunt in New York. My older brother and I went to live with an uncle. This moment turned my already bad dreams into hellish nightmares. For the next three and a half years, I was physically, sexually, and emotionally abused by the man who was supposed to love and protect me. Sometimes the hurt and pain still feels fresh. I can still remember one day in particular when I came home from school and my uncle attacked me, threw me against the wall and left me naked and crying in the bathtub. As I grew older, that hurt and pain morphed into bitterness, anger and rage. I cried and I prayed for a way out. By the grace of God, my mother overcame her addiction to drugs and we all moved back home. Unfortunately, the damage had already been done. My mother worked extremely long hours at whatever odd job she could obtain. Since my mom wasn't home and there was no other adult figures in our lives, I let my anger and rage out on anyone and everyone. By the age of 13, my reputation for anger and violence was recognized by the Crips in my neighborhood, and I was quickly recruited. Before joining the Crips organization, I always felt lonely unwanted and unloved. Suddenly, the toughest gang members in my community were embracing me. They fed me, clothed me, gave me money and a purpose. Honestly, this was the first time in my life that I actually felt love. Whether you believe it was genuine or not, doesn't matter. For the first time in my life, I felt it. And for that love, I was willing to do anything and everything to never lose it. The Crips taught me how to sell drugs and how to rob drug dealers. So that's what I did. I'm not proud of the things I did. I did the things, uh, I did the things I did from lack of knowledge of knowing any other way. Years passed and naturally all bad things come to an end. So I was caught, convicted of burglary and sentenced to five years in prison. I knew that I wanted more out of life than the places and people who always seemed to surround me. I wanted to get out, but I didn't see any options for myself. So while I was incarcerated, I read every book I could get my hands on. I studied martial arts. I formulated a plan to own my own company and become successful when I was released. 
I even got my small business certificate while still in prison. I was released and filled with joy and hope. Then my optimistic plan met post-incarceration reality. Every window of opportunity was locked and every door was slammed in my face. Sooner or later, every job interviewer asks, do you have any prior felonies? And I can just see the look in their eyes as they mentally threw my application in the trash. The bills kept coming though, and the pressure was mounting. I felt as if my only chance to survive was to start selling drugs again. So that's what I did. I lied to myself saying, I'm only selling to rich people, so I'm not doing any harm. I'm not gonna lie to you, it worked. I sold a lot of drugs. I dressed as a homeless man for a few different reasons. First, police wasn't looking to arrest any homeless men. Second, gold digging women weren't after any homeless men. And third, stick up kids weren't looking to rob any homeless men. So during the day I put in my work in the city, then I would change my clothes and drive to my three story lake house with my own private beach where I had jet skis, a pontoon party boat and a hard drop top Mercedes Benz. In my mind, I thought I had everything but the hole in my heart made sure that I had nothing. I would cry as I kayaked around the perimeter of Lake Horace, asking God, why do I feel so empty? I thought when I obtained all these things that I would finally be happy. I wasn't. Deep in my heart, I knew there's no way that God can bless me when I'm destroying so many lives to obtain riches. So I began asking God to help me out of the game but allow me to sustain all the things I have obtained throughout the years while in it. <laughs> Laughable, I know, but it's what I asked for. Sometimes God doesn't give you what you asked for. He gives you what you need. I was soon blessed with my beautiful queen, Shaquanda Allen. She saved my life. She helped me take ownership of my past and my present life. My queen, my queen, Help me find my light. And for the first time ever, I loved myself. I became her partner in life and manager of our company, Roots Natural Hair Shop. The fight for righteous prosperity has been long and hard, but the rewards are endless. Because of our hard work and perseverance, in 2020, my queen was named Young Entrepreneur of the Year by Stay Work Play of Manchester, New Hampshire. I met my fellow the Freeman co-founder, Marquise Olison, while I was covering the 2020 presidential election. During the New Hampshire's primaries as a reporter for the Google News Initiative and Stringer Media. I voted for the first time in nearly 20 years. I've joined the board of the New Hampshire ACLU and I'm part of the BIPOC committee of New Hampshire. I'm also the decarceration organizer for American Friends Service Committee. I'm running for state representative of District 11, Ward 4 in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I'm now running for secretary for New Hampshire's Young Democrats. Felon of Freeman isn't just an organization. It's my life's mission. I've done the work molding my handcuffs and the cufflinks. I know all the false steps on the path. I know what it's like to struggle. And more importantly, I know how to succeed, how to get over it, get through it, move forward and elevate. I'm now focused on taking others on that journey with me.
thank you so much for listening to my story. And now I'm gonna pass it on to my brother and my fellow Freeman, Antonio Maven. How are you doing? Thank you, Anthony. So my name is Antonio Maven. I'm a, I'm a team member of Felon of Freeman. And also I am the first participant of the program. I was born on July 27, 1987 in Detroit to a single black mother and her daughter. My mother wanted to give my sister and I something better, something new. She wanted to raise us somewhere safe and give us a fighting chance at a successful and happy life. So with happiness and success and her hopes and, and prayers, she moved us to Nashville, New Hampshire, the live free or die state. Though it was safer than Detroit, life in New Hampshire wasn't always sunshine and rainbows. From the time I can remember, it was my mother, sister, four cousins and myself. There were seven of us, including my mother. I started acting out and getting into trouble when I was about five years old. I was throwing rocks, breaking windows, shoplifting, stealing bikes, etc. With the things I was doing, it wasn't long before I became acquainted with the justice system. By the time I turned eight years old, I was already on juvenile probation. <clears throat> I was way too young to understand what this meant for my life and future. As an eight-year-old, how could I be aware of the stigmas, labels, and brands these actions would have placed upon me? I know this was a challenge for my mother. Looking back on it now with kids of my own, I see things from an entirely different perspective. She was a single black mother raising not only her own two kids, but also my four cousins. She made sure we were all fed, clothed, bathed, while making sure we all felt loved and wanted on top of her daily stresses and struggles. As a child, I didn't know what she was going through because of how easy she made it all look. But sometimes making things look easy comes with consequences. When I would get into trouble and have to go to court, my mother would say, just plead guilty so we can get out of these people's faces. Neither of us understood the damage it would cause for me to plead guilty to all the things I was accused of doing. I wasn't an innocent child by any means, but I didn't do all the things that I pled guilty to. Around the age of 10, I was put in a group home called the Webster House in Manchester, New Hampshire. And at the age of 11, I was kicked out of that program. Two years after that, at the age of 13, I was sent away to another group home in Colebrook, New Hampshire called Eckert. Well, Camp Eckert. Looking back on it all now, Camp Eckert was a great place. I learned a lot of things there. And had I not been so angry and depressed and upset about being there, I could have learned a lot more and taken away a lot more from that place. When I was 15, I was given a private graduation from the program. The staff and counselors said they couldn't do anything else for me and I had made as much progress as I could. And when I returned to regular school, it wasn't long before I started selling marijuana to other students. Well, finally, having my own money gave me confidence and, a, and esteem. My wardrobe changed to fit my self-image, and it made me feel more accepted amongst my peers. We could afford name brand things, and I didn't have to go to school in hand-me-downs. I could now buy whatever I wanted for myself. I helped my mother with bills. I got my sister whatever she wanted and needed, and everyone treated me as the grown man that I thought I was. <clears throat> I remember the feeling and pride I had 
when at 16, I paid for my own driver's license. That was one of the happiest Zaya. moments. I had a sense of freedom that I never felt before. Soon after receiving my license, I lost it for 16 year old reasons, speeding, unpaid parking tickets, etc. Two summers later, I was sentenced to two and a half to five years in New Hampshire State Prison for driving without a license and possession of a controlled drug. I spent my 18th, 19th, and 20th birthday in Concord, New Hampshire Department of Corrections. And for the next 13 years of my life, I was in and out of prison, spending no more than a year at a time as a free man between sentences. But my last sentence was the last sentence. When I met Anthony last summer, I was on the fence teetering back and forth. Do I go back to what I know? Or do I take a chance to do something different? He told me his story and all he had been through, but I knew it wasn't for sympathy or for clout, but instead to show me that no matter what you go through. It is at this point of the live Zoom broadcast where we ran into a problem with the audio. Antonio's sound was temporarily cut. I will read his words before returning back to the live broadcast. Continuing Antonio's thought, Anthony said that to show me that no matter what's happening or what you're going through, if you're still breathing, you can get back up, make something better out of it. He said, don't go backwards, keep your head up, God's got a plan for you. And I told him, I wasn't sure about God. And in return, he said, I know you have your doubts or don't believe he still sees you. That's why I'm here. This was meant to be. We're going to change the world. Anthony helped me get registered to vote. And I voted for the first time ever. I never thought I would say it, but voting felt amazing. I felt empowered, like I had the right to be a citizen and to participate. Taking that confidence, I saw a job opening at the casino, the River Casino and Bar in Nashville, New Hampshire. Everything in my mind was telling me that they wouldn't accept me and they wouldn't hire a felon. Anthony pushed me. He made me fill out the application. I did. And in the interview, I told the interviewer, Jen, about my background. She said, we do give second chances, but we have to write to the state for approval. They told me they would get back to me. And I thought to myself, oh, well, this is exactly what I thought would happen. They would never hire me because of my past. Two weeks later, I got a call and I got the job. I couldn't believe it. I became the first former felon to work at that casino. After my training period, I was only the, the, only the fourth person to pass the car dealing exam on my first try. My bosses and coworkers and customers love me and my work ethic. They've given me more, they've given me more shifts and responsibilities and in addition to dealing cards, I'll soon be helping with security at the door. I'm earning money to take care of my family and my soon to be born child. Felony Freeman is also allowing me to study graphic designs in my spare time. I actually designed the flyers for this event. My life is completely changed. I wake up looking forward to building a better life for myself and my kids. I love myself and I'm happy. I finally have support I can count on. 
I'm here building someone to free me because I can see the challenges that a child can have with their anger and emotions. I know firsthand what can happen when a child growing up in poverty isn't allowed to use words to express their needs. So often when other races of children have challenges, they're seen as mistakes and things that they can learn from and grow from. They, are, they have counseling and second chances, but with folks like us, folks like me, it seems the answer is punishment and incarceration instead of understanding and therapy. It seems like inside the justice system, it's just us. And here at Felina Freeman, we're gonna change that. That was powerful. Thank you so much. And please, it this is not an easy thing to share some of the most difficult parts of one's life. And, you know, there's family members and friends of, of Anthony and Antonio in this room. So it's one of those moments where you first share those stories, the things that you don't even tell your closest people to you. Um, it's It can be emotional and move me. I just, I gotta give Antonio uh, a round of applause because that was that was so powerful, man. Anthony, you two, uh, you're amazing, both of you guys. That was, uh, I'm so touched. Uh, I'm gonna turn uh, the microphone over to the next Freeman, Mr. Tone Payton. Hello, everyone. Thank you for uh, being here. First, I, I, I need to say thank you to Chris, Don, Shantae, Chuck, and Carol, um, as well as Terrell, Tavon, and my daughter, Amelia. Um, they keep me honest. They keep me on track. But hello, my name is Anthony Payton. I was born to a two-parent household in the projects of Brooklyn, New York, so I consider myself an anomaly. Both of my parents worked, and I was fortunate to have inherited their work ethic. We had food in the fridge, clothes on our backs, family cars, and toys for Christmas. I was a fat, shy, and happy kid who loved to laugh. However, even with all of their parenting, sometimes it was hard to escape the chaos that was right outside of our doors. Fast forward a few years later, my dad, who was a Vietnam vet, was laid off from work, picked up a heroin habit, and my mother was stricken with diabetes. Through it all, they maintained the household as best as they could. Although I have siblings who took the conventional route towards success, one of my brothers and I turned to the street as a way to compensate for our decline in lifestyle. This wasn't something that I wanted to do, but at the time, it felt as if it was something that I had to do. We invested in a fast and deadly game of drug dealing. This would be a terrible shortcut that would stick with me for decades. Things moved so fast. We went from lending friends video games to eventually lending them automatic weapons. Young teenagers who were once friends now plotted each other's violent demise. Eventually success at anything will breed envy and jealousy. In the life of drug dealing, competition can turn deadly. Years later, my brother and I went to prison on manslaughter charges. During that incarceration, my mother would succumb to the complications of diabetes. She died without me being able to say goodbye to her. It's the type of pain that I can't articulate in words nearly 23 years later and I'm a writer. I was released from the New York State Prison at 24 years old. While inside, I received my GED 
earned some college credit and did a lot of independent studies. But at 24, I thought I had all the answers and I thought I would catapult myself to success by any means necessary. Boy, was I wrong. Truthfully, I wasn't ready. I stayed clean for four years before I wound up catching another case by taking the same shortcut of drug dealing. I smartened up though, and I did business in a much safer way than in the projects of Brooklyn. Here in New Hampshire, I really had to have that kill or be killed mentality. Fast forward to my mid thirties and I made some measurable strides. I got back into college, I met a great woman and we started an entertainment company that featured our local television show. We helped to promote local businesses, artists, and assisted in fundraisers. I settled down. Dad and my family were proud. However, I had one foot into legitimacy and another foot back in a dealing. So I still struggled with that shortcut. In 2013, I was arrested on federal drug distribution charges. Three days after my arrest, I found out that my then fiance was pregnant with my daughter. By mid 2014, I was sentenced to 10 years in a federal courtroom. This was one of the darkest periods of my life. Four years into my incarceration, my father would eventually lose the battle to stage four pancreatic cancer. I said my final words to my father over a phone. And just like my mother nearly 20 years prior, I wasn't able to say goodbye in person. When I calculated all of my losses and the pain that I put others through, this became the turning point in my life. I will have wound up giving a total of 13 years of incarceration. I'd miss birthdays, funerals, first steps, and various milestones. If the change doesn't happen now, then when? I was determined to capitalize from this incarceration. I took a course in culinary arts and spent most of my time in the mess hall, learning every aspect of a kitchen and gaining as many certifications as I could. I studied day trading and screenwriting as well. At the same time, I tried my best to be a parent over the phone, as well as the occasional visits. Six years and 10 months after my arrest, I was released to a federal halfway house in New Hampshire. I abided by all rules, became employed, got to see my children more often, and thanks to my support system, I made a smooth transition back into society. This time I felt as though I was ready. I took accountability did plenty of soul searching and realized that a lot of my decisions were in part selfish. I wound up getting an apartment right near my daughter. The situation was great as I was now building a relationship with her as a free man. I found day gainful employment. I did some day trading in the stock market. I became a freelance writer. I got a vehicle and I finally began to get the ground under me. I also became a registered voter and it was during this process that I will also meet like-minded individuals. Felina Freeman has a philosophy that aligns with mine. To paraphrase a businessman by the name of Zig Zegler, attitude determines altitude. Felina Freeman is an organization that can assist when faced with the many obstacles upon release. It gets rough sometimes, and I've soldiered through countless periods of frustration and letdowns. Having the right attitude is absolutely my biggest X factor. This is the type of mindset and structure that I would like to share with others who are on this journey. It isn't easy, but to form an alliance and camaraderie with people who have an open mind and open heart, who are root for your success is priceless. Aside from our programs, we are also starting a podcast to help spread our message and network. 
because our success won't be in a vacuum. We need and appreciate all the support. This is why I believe in this organization. And this is why I keep in mind to keep striving. This new chapter in my life is just beginning. And when I think of my kids, I think about building a better society and a better future for them. Um, my daughter, Amelia, she spends most Tuesday nights, she sleeps over. And I can't tell you what type of feeling it is to be a free man and have this little girl with me. She bosses me around. Um, she teaches me. I teach her. I'm her student. I'm her teacher. And everything that I'm doing right now is to build a better society for her and her brothers. Um, I watched her sleep maybe two weeks ago and she was laying in here sleeping and I burst into tears, full blown tears about how beautiful things were going and the trajectory that I'm on right now. This is what I believe our organization can spread to others. Every story won't be the same. Every outcome won't be the same. But you have a fighting chance when you have a network of men and women who can help assist. Because it's my opinion that right now in New Hampshire, we're filling a void. There isn't a program that's like this. You don't have the men and women who are equipped to deal with these types of situations who actually walk this walk and can help navigate through those waters. I wanna thank you all for joining us and supporting this venture. And with that, I'll pass this off to a man that we call our quarterback. Um, he's like the Tom Brady of this thing right here. And his name is Mr. Marquise Olinson. Thank you. Tone, Tone, thank you. Um, I just want to give a moment of acknowledgement because I got to compose myself because I'm, I've got my face full of tears because uh, and I, I want to, Chuck Novak said, great job and great story. And I want to thank Chuck because Chuck is who introduced uh, us to Tone. And uh, it was that, was, that was powerful. I didn't know that in that moment we would be sitting here in this moment. Um, and it's just, yeah, that was... I just want to say thank you to Chuck. I also want to say thank you to Maggie Fogarty and Grace Kendecki over at uh, American Friends Services Committee. You guys have been great support, Rad New Hampshire, um, and to Surge. Um, you guys have all the the organizations that have really embraced us and helped us to to see our light. Um, and Surge stands for showing up for racial justice. Um, it's really powerful how all of you guys have really helped us to, to grow this organization and to help us in this very short period of time to come together and see how our own personal powers can build something great and build something good. Um, and I do want to say as well, because Tone is going to be hosting Tone and Antonio, uh, Tone and Anthony are gonna be hosting the podcast uh, that we're producing. And that's a part of our job training program by teaching folks how to be their own boss, how to make digital content, how to do digital marketing so that 
you can find a way to make a living for yourself and don't have to have those doors closed on you. It's the thing that we want to make sure that everyone has that. And we want to make sure that folks have the ability to stare down and, and see their daughter or son sleeping just like Tone did. That was, I'm still, wow. For me, my story started in 2018. I thought I had finally made it. I was 40 years old, living in one of the nation's most expensive neighborhoods, Venice, California. I was working for the child advocacy nonprofit, Common Sense Media, doing a job that I literally created. I was getting paid more money than I had ever made to do exactly what I wanted to do each day. To tell you how much of a dream world I was living in, the guy who is in charge of catching Elon Musk's rockets as they fall from outer space slept in the apartment right above mine. Now, at that time, I was in the best physical shape of my life. Before then, I'd always been a big person. Like at peak fat, I tipped the scales at about 360 pounds. That was in the beginning of, of 2016. My work at Common Sense Media taught me about the dangerous physical and emotional effects of adverse childhood experiences. I got therapy. I changed the foods that I ate. I began a daily practice of walking, yoga, and meditation. I lost 180 pounds without ever stepping into a gym or counting a calorie. Considering that I started my life on the west side of Chicago, born poor to a 16-year-old single mom, my life was a dream. Everything was finally going right. Now, it was at that moment that the government supplied some gruesome images which really changed my view of reality. Now, in the summer of 2018, I, like everybody else, saw the ICE detention center footage and something inside of me broke. The questions came to me almost like a poem. If they're showing kids in cages on TV, then how long before those kids look just like me? What good is all this success and money if in the end it can't protect me or my family? Now, I'm not here to do some sort of political rant. I'm not here to alienate anybody because of their views. I know everybody has different ways they look at the world. I'm just trying to help you understand where my mind was at that time. And for me, it was really simple. I believe that the election of 2016 was interfered with or, or stolen. And if the, the perpetrators were now locking up immigrants and allowing innocent children to die of starvation and heat exhaustion, then what wouldn't they do to maintain power? I took a hard look at myself in the mirror. I might have been successful, but I had family members back home in Chicago who were still struggling. None of my success was directly helping any of them. I have a cousin, a beautiful black woman with a master's degree who still lives on the west side of Chicago. She and her teenage daughter practiced tying each other up and escaping from kidnappers because they knew as black women they couldn't count on Liam Neeson and certainly not the Chicago PD to show up and save them. When I looked in the mirror, the person staring back at me told me I was fighting the wrong fight. The media that children consume is important, 
However, if democracy goes sideways, what will happen to folks like my cousin? What will happen to folks like me or Tone or Anthony? I quit my job and I dedicated myself to doing everything I could to make sure Democrats maintain control of the House in 2018 and making sure that the president was different and out of office in 2021. I know what some of you guys are thinking. You know, who are you as one person to believe that you can make a difference in national elections? Look, I have succeeded in my life by filling my head with powerful mantras that inspire me to take massive action. One of those is Edmund Burke's famous quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, with thoughts like that running through my mind, that's why I never find myself on the sidelines of life. In 2018, I left my comedy career to achieve the impossible, electing the first black president. I held fundraisers. I toured Southern California leading Camp Obama trainings. I was even on the team that helped build the nation's largest political phone banking operation in our history. In 2010, as a staff member on the DNC's California coordinated campaign, I led a volunteer operation that did not lose a single democratic seat the year of that giant Tea Party red wave. In 2012, I led caravans of volunteers in California to knock on doors in Nevada, securing the silver state for President Obama. After that, I led organizing efforts for Nextdoor.com, for Airbnb, Common Sense Media, and others. For the last decade, I've had the voice of Barack Obama as the background music of my life. If one voice can change a room, and if one voice can change a room, then it can change a city. And if it can change a city, it can change a state. And if it can change a state, then it can change a nation. And if it can change a nation, it can change the world. Your voice can change the world. So in the summer of 2018, I tried to gather all my Obama friends to help me fight in the midterm elections. However, they thought I had lost my mind. Not only did I quit a job that most people would kill to have, the messages I posted on Facebook were dark and scary. I was saying things like, Donald Trump is building an army. I said, it won't be long before he sends tweets and bombs will appear on his enemy's doorsteps. I said, if he's willing to allow innocent kids to die in cages, he's gonna push his followers to keep the presidency by any means necessary. Now, in hindsight of 2021, I was a little prophetic, but in 2018, people thought I had went stone cold crazy. To try to help me, my friends, the leaders of the California Obama campaign arranged an ambush intervention. Side note for white allies, white friends, folks, talking to you guys, please do not jump to DEFCON 10 and call the police or stage some sort of ambush intervention if you think your black friends are in crisis. Call that friend and listen with compassion and understanding before you take any action. You have no idea the life and experiences they've lived. And if your black friend grew up on the west side of Chicago, like I did, hearing the tragic tales of Fred Hampton and Emmett Till, like I did, that you would know any sort of attempted ambush would not go well. So on one of the hottest days of the summer, I was trapped in my car, surrounded by police, 
paramedics, social workers, an ambulance, and a bunch of powerful white friends who love me, but whose perfectly manicured lives meant that they didn't live in my reality. And in that particular moment, my reality was every black man's worst nightmare. I was surrounded by armed authorities and one false move or one wrong word could have been the end of my freedom or my life. At that moment, it didn't matter if I was angry, hurt, afraid or betrayed. I knew that I had to keep my head in order to literally keep my head. After hours of talking under tremendous pressure, the officials were finally convinced that I wasn't a danger to myself or others. I was allowed to go free. However, the damage to my well-being and reputation were already done. <sighs> if any of you have wondered what it's like when someone with power and connections implies that you'll never work in this town again, I can tell you it feels terrible. Your phone stops ringing. Your emails don't get returned. The people who were once your friends send you DMs saying they can't talk to you anymore. It's terribly lonely. I had rushed into action wanting to use my voice and talents to save the world and ended up destroying everything that I spent years building. At the beginning of 2019, I set a new plan. I was moving down to South LA. I wanted to train organizers of color so that they could get jobs during the 2020 elections. I've seen firsthand how so many paid positions went to skilled people in affluent neighborhoods, while black people who needed the money and brown people who needed the money were asked to volunteer. While I was transitioning, the person closest to a best friend that I ever had died while helping me move. He literally passed away at the same age from the same heart condition as my grandfather, whose body I had found at 11 years old. I was devastated. A couple of weeks later, I was at the Standard Hotel in Hollywood when I had a Karen moment with the hotel management. Tired of bending over backwards to accommodate white fragility, I stood my ground. I received a firsthand preview of what the world was gonna experience during the summer of 2020. Again, this was February, 2019. And even though everything was on Facebook Live, being woke was not yet a thing. I was tased and dragged from the hotel, charged with trespassing in a room that I paid for. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's took me to the Olympia Fields Hospital and had doctors document my injuries. Then in the parking lot, everywhere on my body that was marked as damaged was an area they targeted. I was choked and tortured while handcuffed. When my repeated yelling, this is how they killed Eric Garner, attracted the eyes and cameras of the hospital personnel, the sheriffs called the notorious LAPD to help finish me. When the LAPD swarmed onto the scene, I knew I was done for. Fortunately, I had one last trick up my sleeve. I yelled, Please call Officer Kevin Dunnigan. He is my friend. Please call Officer Kevin Dunnigan. He is my friend. Officer Kevin Dunnigan was a police officer and an actor. He just recently retired. He's known throughout the police department for his aversion to corruption. I actually used to do comedy with Kevin. <laughs> so when I yelled his name, the LAPD officers like turned on their heels and left. 
they knew somebody with gravitas might come looking. So the sheriffs took me to the West Hollywood station. Hours passed and I was naked in a cold cell with no bed, no bed and barely any toilet paper. They lied to my friend saying I was asleep in a bed while I shivered on an ice cold floor. When I would ask for a lawyer, the officers would laugh and leave. I wondered, is this how Sandra Bland spent the last hours of her life? After a shift change, I was finally processed and allowed to go free. I was traumatized, angry of the police and, the, and, and afraid of the world. I stayed at cheap hotels and Airbnb hostels around Los Angeles, trying to figure out the way to share what happened to me. And I wanted to prevent this from happening to anybody else. And I've really learned why victims stay silent as people accuse me of making things up or again, dismissed me as crazy. A couple of amazing friends took me to be evaluated by their psychologist. I was relieved to know that I survived massive trauma and needed therapy, but I wasn't delusional or crazy. However, soon the money ran out and I was out on the streets. I slept on the trains rolling through the city or on a park bench listening to the rats fight in a trash can three feet away from me. I myself was like that injured animal, lashing out and pushing folks away who wanted to help. I just really couldn't mask that bitterness and anger, which honestly, I mostly harbored towards myself. The year before, I was dining in the homes of millionaires and billionaires with captains of industries and future presidential candidates. Now I was dodging the eyes of law enforcement and sleeping on the streets. I decided that I was going to figure out how to pull myself up out of this state. If I could find the lessons that helped bring me back from the brink, I knew that I would be able to connect and help others who were in need. First thing I did was I learned about the homelessness situation. I remember waking up at 3 a.m. to walk across town, all across Los Angeles to a facility that only helped one person a week. I got there just before five in the morning and someone still beat me to the spot. Another instance, I remember asking someone to for some help and their reply was, you should stop being so proud and act more homeless. I was stunned. It reinforced that point to me though that homelessness isn't just being without a shelter. It's a physical and mental state. And some folks want you in that defeated state before they can help you. Next, I learned about the criminal justice system. I saw and I watched as a prosecutor barely flipped through my file and then just added additional charges to have leverage for plea negotiations. I saw how without, being, uh, without having a private lawyer or loved ones in a courtroom, that meant my case was always one of the last ones to be heard on court days. My time just didn't matter because my time didn't matter to anybody else. My public defender was much more interested in trying to convince me to take a plea deal rather than looking at the videotape of my encounter or arguing my innocence. The most harrowing thing I saw wasn't in my case. It was the jury selection of a trial of another black man. More than 40 prospective jurors were brought in from very diverse Los Angeles County, and not a single juror was a black male. In fact, 
there were only three black people in the entire potential pool. It was as if all the positions of power in the courtroom, the judge, the lawyers, and the jurors were all Karens. And the defendants in the justice system were just like Antonio said, just us. I thought to myself, my God, I have a degree from Northwestern University. I've shared the stage with President Barack Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama, now First Lady Dr. Joe Biden. I've worked with some of the nation's largest corporations, but in the end, our system, our justice system, sees just another black man. What about the folks who don't have my accomplishments and don't have access to the resources or Rolodex that I had? Now, the true bright spot and saving grace of this ordeal was witnessing the kindness and generosity of the people and organizations in South LA. They pulled me out of the black hole I was in. And this experience really taught me about the power and need for nonprofit organizations to fill that gap in our society. Miss Gloria Davis and Dr. Byron Johns of the Girls Club of Los Angeles and Loretta Randall of When a Thousand Grandmothers Pray were true lifelines for me. They gave me a place to stay, food to eat. They helped me find my purpose in life. First on a couch in Long Beach and then on an air mattress in an unused community center. At times I didn't have a shower or hot water, but seriously, I was the happiest person alive. I used my talents to contribute to the community who really and truly looked out for me. I wrote the community engagement portion of a program called Project Lead, which helped at-risk youth get the mentorship and guidance they need to avoid prison, attend college, and have careers. I wrote a grant to help an organization bring yoga and meditation to parks in South LA. I did lawn works for grandmothers and vacuum churches with my great friend, Dimitri McKay. I hope he's here. Thank you, Dimitri. I produced panels for a theater festival and a ceremony to commemorate veterans in the arts and humanities. I found my truest self by focusing on how I could make the world better for others. Now, after going to court with an army of grandparents and community advocates, again, thank you, Ms. Davis, my public defender snapped into action and my case was resolved. Shortly after that, I went to, for work, to work for Governor Deval Patrick's presidential campaign where I set up his national digital volunteer strategy. I met Anthony and with his story and spirit, Felina Freeman was born. Felina Freeman was built in the process of self-rebirth, which I, myself, Anthony, Tone, and Antonio have all gone through. Learning how to own every moment of your life through your story. Understanding how every single moment is a decision and every decision led you to where you are today is true personal power. Our overarching goal is to build a healthier, happier society where everyone's needs and purposes are met through finding their greatness within themselves and helping others who haven't yet found their light. Now, we're asking you to join us as friends, as allies, as donors and partners to help us build a world where everyone is a free man or a free woman. Thank you. What you guys have witnessed today is the proof of our concept through building this every single thing from the backgrounds on our screens to the invitations that you received to the the evites was created by the men on this call we had to everybody had to learn things like slack and zoom 
in Canva in order to do digital creation. This is what we want to be able to provide for formerly incarcerated men and women nationwide. To be able to build something, have folks support them, and to be able to transform their families, build connections and positivity. Mm -hmm. This is the work that we're building. Uh, this is the, the thing that we are passionate about. And it's not all going to be perfect, just like none of us in our lives are perfect. We're all just dropped here and made out of cosmic stardust, the, the breath of God, a connection of protons, neutrons, and electrons, however you want to think of us. And we're all, without an instruction manual, have to figure out life. And so some of us start life making mistakes because they're just following the path that someone else laid out before them. But it's our hope that by, by having the men and women of Felon of Freeman come together to be able to use the tools of communication, of connection, of their stories, to be able to find those young folks that before they go through these challenges and help guide them along. And for those folks that have already gone through those challenges, to help them elevate to a better place. Because sometimes you have to have gone through something in order for you to be able to relate and talk with people, not at a level where you feel you're above or below them, where you can just relate as equals. And for me, that was my own personal experience where I got to see how the world really, really worked. And it made me say, how can I make it work for everybody else? I bet you're wondering, how can you help? Volunteer. We're looking for researchers, therapists, digital creators, web designers, improvisers, comedians, everything. Partnerships. We want to collaborate with organizations to better our world. Anybody that's working in social justice, in criminal justice reform, in, uh, in, in actually in anything that leads to more of us, more human beings connecting and living in society in happy and healthy ways. Follow and engage. So like, follow, and share all of our digital and physical content. And lastly, donate. Um, and I actually am going to call on Surge New Hampshire, Jack uh, Peish, to tell us a little bit about Surge New Hampshire. And they're going to be helping us with the donate portion uh, of our organization. You guys are amazing. Um, so my name is Jack Peisch with Showing Up for Racial Justice Upper Valley, which is engaged with towns in both New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, Showing Up for Racial Justice is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. Uh, through community organizing, mobilizing, and education, Surge moves white people to act as part of a multiracial majority for justice with passion and accountability. Uh, we have set up a GoFundMe through our organization to handle fundraising for Felon to Freeman. It is our passion to help support the work of organizations like Felon to Freeman who are starting out and growing the resources and abilities in order to move us all to a more just and fair society. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Jack. You're amazing. Thank you so much, Serge. Uh, we so, so very much appreciate you. And uh, we have one single link where you guys can go for everything at fellintofreeman.com slash help. fellintofreeman.com slash help. This isn't a problem of a single race. 
incarceration touches everybody. And as we are starting to see, when you militarize the police, they don't just act on one community. That power tends to spread everywhere because they didn't pay all that money to have these tanks and bulletproof everything to not use it. And lastly, we're focused on collaboration rather than competition. In order for the caring economy to flourish, we must work together to end the false choice of making an income versus making an impact. We live in a world with an abundance of opportunity. We must end the mindset of fighting over false scarcity. When humans learn to monetarily reward the skills of empathy and understanding at the same rate we reward bargaining and calculating, we as a species will once again live in growth and prosperity. And now for Tone's interview of Anthony on the Felon Freeman Podcast. This is Anthony Payton with the Felon of Freeman Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, friend, brother, co-founder of Felon of Freeman, Mr. Anthony Harris. Mr. Harris, can you please tell us about your push for the state rep and for the secretary of the New Hampshire Young Democrats and also what inspired this? Yes, yes. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Well, I'm running for a state representative for District 11, Ward 4 in Manchester, New Hampshire. A beautiful person. His name is Emmett Saldati. He came into my queen's shop, Roots Natural Hair Shop, one day with his son. And I started talking to him and he posed this question to me. He said, so when are you running for governor? <laughs> and I started laughing. And then he gives me this stoic face, like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> and then I, so then I started to tell him, you know, actually, I've never thought about it before. Give me a second and um, let me discuss it with my queen and do my due diligence and I'll get back to you. I started researching the jobs of politicians. And as I'm looking at it, I realized... I've been politicking my whole life. Nice. Um, a lot of us have, you know, when whenever we get together and we start talking about the issues that's going on, that's affecting our lives, you are politicking. And the only difference between uh, the politicians and and regular people who are just talking politics is that they're actually doing something about it. Uh-huh. And that does doesn't go for politician. That goes for for activists, uh, abolitionists. That's the only difference. We're we sit around. We're complaining like this is happening, that is happening, why this is happening. But do you know what we do after we complain? We get together, we brainstorm, and we figure out a course of action that we can take to change it. The state rep of District Eleven Ward Four right now, Nicole Klein Knight. Um, is the one that inspired me to run for secretary for the New Hampshire Young Democrats. And um, so I, I said, you know, why not? It's the, the positions pretty much overlap. They correlate with each other. The work that I'll be doing as a state rep is the same. Is, is, um, is, is It correlates with being a secretary and actually being a decarceration organizer for AFSE. And so... Um, that's that's who who inspired me, and that's um, the story for my politics. But the reason, the reason, I want to become state representative is I've been in Manchester um, 
for over 10 years now. And I see what's affecting the people in our community. I'm in this community. It's affecting me. And so I'm seeing that nothing is really being done about it. So I said, you know what? I told Emmett, yes, I do want to run. And this is why. And I'm not going to run for governor right now. <laughs> I'm running for state representative, but I do want to join the fight because that's what this is. It's a fight. You know, these are the issues that, that, that are plaguing our communities, this mass incarceration, plaguing our communities, you know. And, and so I said, I'm going I'm to get in here and I'm going to do something about it. I'm actually going to be a voice for the people. I relate to the people. Um, I get out here and I talk, I talk to a lot of people in the community and I see what's going on. So I said, you know what, let me do something about to change it. Now, as I was saying before, we're going to need your help as a politician. We can do some things, but for the most part, we're going to need you with the issues that you, that you, uh, take issue with, then we need you to stand up and and let your voice be heard. Come inside of the house. Start voting to oppose and or support these bills that's going through legislation. And so I, now I said I'm here. I am a man of the people and for the people. So uh, hopefully I get out there and go vote for me come time November uh, 2022. That's great. Um, we love to hear that, especially with the organization that you and I have, along with Marquise and Antonio. This lines up right with what we're trying to do. Another question. Any important upcoming bills or anything that the average person may not know about that's going on right this second that you can give us information on to be aware of or to look out for? Yes. Yes. Write this in your calendars. April 8th, April 7th, April 8th, and April 9th. We must come out. We will need you to come out in droves. Come with signs. Oppose House Bill 544. It is a very dangerous bill. I challenge all of you to go on to your New Hampshire government site and read this bill so that you can see and understand what I'm talking about. Remember, April 7th, 8th, and 9th, come out in droves. We're going to be in Bedford. We're going to be holding signs. We are here to oppose House Bill 544. Spoken like a true man of the people. Um, how can we vote for you? How can, how can we go and find out how to cast our ballots, etc.? I'm running for secretary for New Hampshire Young Democrats. You can go on uh, New Hampshire Young Democrats, nhyd.org, um, and you can go request a ballot and vote for Anthony Harris for secretary. There you go. So you could go on nhyd.org and request your ballot to vote for Clifton West. Vice President of Public Affairs, vote for Erica Perez for NHYD President, vote for Leah Cohen, Vice President of Political Affairs, 
Rebecca McWilliams for treasurer, Anthony Harris, myself for secretary, Nicole Klein-Knight for national committee rep, and also Robin Voigt for national committee, committee rep. Do not forget, it starts here on our local level. The, president's, the presidency, yes, it is very important. But it's what's most important is voting on your local levels because these are the politicians that directly affect you. Right, because they always say you build a house from the ground up. So Amen. I believe it does start at the local level and you continue to rise because it will affect change all the way up the ladder. Okay, so people, you got it. Felon the Freeman podcast. We have one more question here for Mr. Harris. Tell us about Roots Natural Hair Shop and your better half. Oh, my goodness. My queen, my queen. I love this woman to pieces. Um, she helped change my life. Um, we was friends for four years. And uh, after four years, we made it official. And um, so now we're going on 10 years together. Wow. Um, she she asked me when we were friends three times to be her manager. And I was like, no. <laughs> the chemistry we had was so beautiful and so perfect. I didn't want to mess it up. You know, um, sometimes sex can mess things up. And so I know our, it wasn't a sexual tension. It was like this so beautiful chemistry. She was like my best friend. And I didn't want to mess that up. So uh, I kept telling her no. And when we finally made it official, I was like, you know what, babe? I'm going to be your manager. And so I took it upon myself to do the business aspect. She's phenomenal at hair. And, you know, teamwork make the dream work. We opened up. Um, we got our proof of existence uh, November 5th, 2018. My queen finally quit her job. And, and, she Geronimo'd off the cliff and said, I believe in myself. Let's go. And we started, we opened up Root Shop um, February the 8th, 2019. Since then, oh, my queen has become Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, uh, um, she's been interviewed. She has so many articles out there. WMUR, um, Mike, Mike Cronin interviewed her, Justine Paradise of NHPR came in and, and interviewed her, you know, was, um, and, and business has been beautiful. You know, my queen, she really doesn't see it as a business. If you tell her, they're all her family members, you know, and, and at Roots, you know, she loves, she loves, she loves people. She loves hair. She has one of the biggest hearts that I know, you know, and, um, she heard that big heart of hers helped help me out and uh, helped me dissipate a lot of the um, negative energy um, from my past so that I can be the man that I am right now in my present. And uh, so Roots right now is located at 136 Bridge Street, um, um, building number two. And, and you can go and check out Roots at uh, Roots with a Z. Natural Hair Shop LLC dot booksy b o o k s y dot com. Book your appointment today and and come get beautified by the Queen of Roots. And I'm speaking from personal experience. That woman knows what she's doing. 
she knows what she's doing. She took me from a zero to a hero within like an hour and some change. And I'm 100 on that, believe me. So again, we got to thank Mr. Anthony Harris for giving us this information, telling us a little bit about what's going on. Stay tuned for the next installment of the Felon and Freeman podcast. We're here and we're turning up and we're letting you know how it's going down with everything from incarceration to politics, you name it. We're here. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week where you'll hear the crowd reaction to the stories, which includes touching, powerful moments from the families and friends of Marquise, Anthony, Antonio, and Tone. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to hit those like, subscribe, and share buttons to keep the freedom train rolling.